Welcome to a socially distant episode of What a Waste of Time. I'm here with my uh, my person I share a household with, Nick. I'm allowed to be here. Uh, whereas Callum, who lives in a different <laughs> household, is uh, speaking to us via satellite. Yeah, via via TV satellite. <laughs> Um, so, um, we're, we're, me and Nick are also sharing earphones and we're hunched over the microphone more than usual. So apologies if we're louder. My spine Um, hurts. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so we decided, you know what will be really uplifting during quarantine? If we talk about death of the author and whether or not it's okay to still enjoy the work by certain problematic faves. Um, so I'm going to start the timer on that. It's going to be um, a fun ride, folks, so yeah. strap in and prepare to feel good about how everything you like is tainted by the bigotry of the people who made it. So, Woo! so I mean, obviously this conversation has been prompted by the hippogriff in the room, Bella, Bella Turf Lestrange. And no, but also, to be fair, also some things you don't like. The bigotry of people who made them, but things you like as well. So, yeah, so Miss Rowling um, has decided to eschew what what form of um, plausible deniability she had left, um, and has just come out as uh, as an open turf, uh, which has raised a lot of questions about whether, like you know, her series of books that were incredibly formative for many uh, for many people in in their youth, uh, particularly uh, LGBT uh, plus youth. Uh, who wouldn't you know it like find themselves drawn to a story about found families and secret cultures that are actually more supportive than the ones that you live in um uh, but now considering that oh this has come from a person with these abhorrent views um is it possible to to still take what you once did from the work that she put out can i just um say that uh in a shocking twist that has surprised no one um, a far-right Republican senator, literally yesterday, mm. um, quoted J.K. Rowling's letter in his bid to try and, you know, shore up anti-LGBT rule law in America. So you're like, oh, look at that. The thing that you didn't think was going to happen, J.K., where po- politicians co-opt your enormous platform and your message of, you know, let's face it, kind of like soft bigotry. Uh, it's being used to hurt people now. Oh, no. If only you could have thought that there were consequences to your actions. Who knew? Thanks, thanks for that, JK. Yeah, I guess I can stop calling her a Blair right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole new, it's a whole new world for her and Graham. Oh, uh, kind of people. Fucking Graham Lenehan. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Anyway, Jim, as the as the kickoff person, do you want to lead in? Because I feel like I'm going to take a guess that of the three of us, Jim, you're probably the one that is like, for lack of a better term, the largest fan of Harry Potter. I think. Uh, no, I think that's Callum. Really? <laughs> <laughs> he listens to like podcasts about it. He's listened to one podcast yeah. by the New Statesman about it. It's one more than me. <laughs> uh yeah, I guess. I think um I'm a, yeah, yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of it. I I I there is one of the films I still haven't seen, so I don't know if that counts as a, a mark against my name. Um <laughs> 
but yeah, I think it was, yeah, I'm very into it. I think I also got kind of more into it again in my 20s because it was like, I don't know, sort of talked about it before, but it was like, it was something that was so not like art film that it was like fun to fun to revisit and do all that stuff in. So yeah, this was obviously uh it was it was like super disappointing and frustrating for me, but I also wouldn't pretend to be having the same experiences with it that obviously, you know, LGBT uh people who were young when it was published or afterwards are having with this whole thing. Because, mm. uh, yeah, that's not that's not my experience as much as, as yeah, as unpleasant as it is. Mm. I've seen a number of um friends of mine who occupy various states of like gender nonconformity and so on um you know tweeting under the hashtag i have no home at hogwarts which i just think that's really fucking sad it is sad that's something that you know meant such a lot to all of these people it's now inextricably i think and the the thing that i think we're going to be talking about at a larger way is that there's the you know, there's the sort of, you know, uh, apologist argument of like, oh, you can separate the art from the artist. But I think fundamentally, and, you know, as as with topics that we'll get onto later on in the show, there are cases where I would love to be able to just cleanly separate the artist from, the, from their art and be able to go, well, you know, just because this person said or thinks bad things doesn't mean that I can't enjoy, say, I don't know, Ender's Game, for example. Mm. You know, like Orson Scott Card, like really unpleasant views and very a bad person. But, you know, Ender's Game, well, boy, what if I could just enjoy that without thinking about it? But the problem is, um, you kind of see, the more you become aware of the views that uh, an author holds, the more you kind of have to apply that lens of reading to their work, which in many ways is kind of an inversion of the death of the author. Mm. Because... The idea of, of death the author is that, you know, the author's opinion and intentions behind the creation of a piece is no more valuable than any other uh, anybody else's specific interpretation of that said work. And as we've discussed on the show before, J.K. Rowling already had some pretty questionable politics within Harry Potter. It was very sort of like Blairite centrist wet dream kind of thing. The character who tries to make a concerted effort to end chattel slavery is treated as a bit of a joke. And you're just left with this kind of like, oh, yeah. At the time when I was a kid, I thought, yeah, it is silly that Hermione's like making dumb badges with spew on them because that's a dumb word Mm. and not really thinking, oh, yeah, but it's slavery, though. That's that's actually worth her trying to get involved with. And it's weird that all the wizards seem fine with it. And now that I'm thinking about it, oh, now I'm kind of, you know, drawn out of the world because I'm having to ask serious questions like, no, why aren't we addressing this in our pursuit of freedom and representation for everybody to not be taken over by fascists oh with with the the, yeah but the house elves still have to be slaves because it's what they want yeah my sort of because i've seen i've I've seen these sort of arguments as well where it's like like can you still enjoy the art um knowing this about about the artist and it's like and i I don't to be honest i don't think either either side is entirely correct because on the one hand um you know, uh, you can make an interpretation from art which the which the artist didn't necessarily intend, and that's still valid. Um, but also, you can't pretend that the artist's worldview has not uh, imbibed their art in some way. You can like one learning like this about J.K. Rowling, uh, even though it's been fairly clear for for a while. Um, but like, you can see like, oh, there are seeds of it there. Like, it's not. It, it's not completely separate from this. I think what's also a bit... I think the J.K. Rowling thing in particular is... 
It's creating such a debate because it's she's chosen she's chosen a type of hate that is not cho- well yeah she has chosen um like she's chosen to hate a group of people who are one of the groups that you can very much still get away with in this day and age like I don't want to be pessimistic and I really hope they do I would be very surprised if like the Fantastic Beasts franchise is put on hold because of this um and I really like I think I honestly like I think if J.K. Rowling had come out and said the same thing about and I don't mean this in like a right-wing commentator like oh they always get a soft but like <laughs> as the recent process have shown the ways uh, that like these other groups treat is horrific I feel like if J.K. Rowling had come out and said the same things about, for example, black people, yeah. they would probably put the franchise on hold. Not Absolutely. because, especially in exactly, this you know, not be, exactly not because the like, you know, preppy execs who run Warner Brothers sincerely care about the plight of black people. They will just look at a balance sheet and go, "What can we get away with?" Mm. And they would look at that and go, "We can't." Yeah. You know, they can they can afford to own a website where a news commentator says those things about black people, but they can't afford to, you know, have it be that that upfront in the movie side of things. And I think one thing that's also unpleasant about it is it exposes how much of a generational culture war this issue is. And I think one of the things that indicates how far there is to go, I believe this is the case. All of the cast members of Harry Potter who've come out on the internet and said basically like the fuck hmm. or don't worry about don't worry about it she's nuts like you can still love the books uh, putting aside whether you actually can all of the cast members who've done that have been the millennial age yeah. cast yep. members whereas i do not i have not seen any statements from older cast members um about it and i think that's telling um, I would also just I on on that, that point actually, I think the it's interesting the way that you you, you point that out. But I think the char- the the actors who have come out though are like the flagship people of the franchise. So I think there is a sense of like they feel more of a direct sense of responsibility to represent that character because like yeah. Daniel Radcliffe is Harry Potter. Like you know, no matter what else yeah. he does in his career, he was. He literally grew up with that role, much like a lot of the fans grew up with him playing that role. And Eddie Redmayne, like, he is still the front man, as far as we can tell, for the current um, Potterverse franchise stuff. So I can see why they may feel more incumbent onto it. It's with, like, someone like, I don't know... Um, um, Imelda Staunton, let's Sure, say. yeah, Imelda Staunton or Maggie Smith or something. They've had much longer and storied careers before their admittedly much lesser roles within Potter, so it's less tied to their personal brand. So I can see why they might not feel as compelled to intervene. And I, I take your point about the whole generational gap, especially when it comes to the perception of trans issues, but I think the mechanics that affect the the um, like lead stars of these franchises make them feel a lot more personally responsible for it in a way. Yeah, I think that's very true. And oh, by the way, I'm not being like, and therefore all the middle-aged members of the Harry Potter cast are transphobes. Like, you know, cast <laughs> Take that, like Michael Gambon. Jason, yeah, J- Jason Isaacs, based on his previous statements, I highly doubt he is uh, agreeing with J.K. Rowling on this issue, but at the end of the day, he had like three lines per film. So, yeah. <laughs> like you said, they were it's, good lines. It's le- I remember there was like, he said in this total aside, like, the ridiculousness of the Harry Potter franchise and the cast they had. 
where he said, like, I realised how mad it was when he was talking to Timothy Spall, who's, like, an amazing actor, yeah. like, bordering on National Treasure. And he said he was talking to Timothy Spall, and Timothy Spall was like, oh, you know, you were on the last production for a while, and Jason Isaac said, oh, I only have one line, and Timothy Spall said, I'd fucking kill for a line. <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> it's like, that's how bad it is. It's just, like, he's the guy in the background. Um... And so yeah, it's no, and you're absolutely right. Those those people don't have the same role within it. But good for the younger cast members for coming. Yes, in. Uh, yeah, especially because they you know they do clearly hold uh, Rowling in such high esteem because they have a much a very close connection to it. So the fact that like you know they they've not only criticised this person in a very uh, influential position, um, even in their own lives, but also a person that they know personally. Hmm. Um, that's that's quite yeah exactly. And I did, like, in yeah. Daniel Radcliffe's statement, he did specifically say, I want to be clear, I am not, I don't, I know that this is probably going to be spun by the, by the media as me trying to attack Joe. But the thing is, I'm not really, you know, it's not my responsibility to tell her what to think. It's not my responsibility to mm. speak for her. All I can do is speak for myself. And I will say that I, you know, and he, and he said, you know, outlined his position, you know, like trans women are women, trans men are men, you know, non-binary people are valid, etc. And like all at least within the circles that we move in, thoroughly uncontroversial statements. But yes. it's going to be framed in a whole... It's it, what it has been framed in a sense that, like, Potter cast slams J.K. Rowling over gender issue. Wah! Yeah. Yeah. It's been very much reported that way. Um, so, yeah, I guess on maybe back on for, like, actual... So, so where, where are you guys on the Daniel Radcliffe statement? Have the thing where he said, like, you know, if you... I can't remember, but it was essentially like if you found these books to be something that empowered you, you can still find that in stories. You know that that hasn't changed. Mm. You still have these stories. Do you think that is the case, or do you think there's something in uh, something in the fact that a turf wrote those books that limits how mm. much the same readers can take away what they took away before? It's. I mean, it's a. It's a really difficult question to answer because I think yes and no. Um, on the one hand, like I, I have vivid memories of studying English literature and language um, in at A level, um, and we were studying the poetry of um, was it Robert Burns, um, and uh, I think people got a bit disillusioned, like wondering what is the point of you know. Um, studying poetry in that way or like making these sort of interpretations because uh, how did you know that that is what the author intended I, I remember once a, uh, for one um, of our assignments one a student wrote um, a piece from the perspective of William Shakespeare basically complaining that um, he'd been held in such high esteem for so many years when all he did was write a few plays when he was like well people have like sort of taken interpretations about their own lives thousands of well a thousand years from now less but uh, it, it, like centuries later that people are applying my work to their lives as if that's what i meant but how could i have meant that and people thought like oh yeah that's very clever but i'm like like i still like just just because an author didn't intend something doesn't mean it isn't there like if if art affects you in a certain way then the art is still doing that whether or not that was what the artist intended mm. um and you know, like re-examining Harry Potter um, in that lens, like I, because on the one hand, you you can see J.K. Rowling's views like bleeding through in that, like 
There is a lot of emphasis on the importance of bloodlines, on the importance of parentage. Rita um, Skeeter is de- uh, described as being quite mannish. Yes, and she is uh, a person who literally changes her form to spy on children mm. um, and is duplicitous and a liar. Um, so you can see how those views are there. At the same time, there is clearly an important through line about you know the, the theme of found families and that um, Harry, you know, his family life with admittedly not his real parents, uh, is quite bleak, and then finds another surrogate family, which is very supportive and uh, life-affirming, and grants him a lot of genuine power. Um, And so it's completely unsurprising to me that uh, trans people and the LGBT community at large um, can find something to identify with there, um, even if, like, I, I'm not entirely sure if that's what J.K. Rowling intended, because clearly that that's just a byproduct of the situation that she wrote, because she still wrote a story about the, you know, the connection to one's parents. Um, but then at the same, like, also, you, I don't think you can you can divorce J.K. Rowling from the work at all, especially in the way that like it has dominated our culture i remember we we watched a, a death of the author video recently which also mentioned um foucault's essay the author does not exist like the author was never born um and where like the idea of the author is actually you know an analysis tool not necessarily coterminous with the person itself and i sort of i've always felt that like would harry potter be as successful as it has been if it wasn't also connected with that rags to riches fairy tale of jk rowling um you know being like coming from poverty and making millions because she wrote a charming children's book um like would like would the stories themselves be the phenomenon that they are if it wasn't connected to that real world fairy tale at the same time for me at least oh sorry i mean it's sorry uh i think that the it is (laughs) I do think that's absolutely tied to our brands. I think that an indicator of how much that's associated with her is I remember when I was sort of back up north with family for Christmas this year, and my uncle Cliff, who this story puts me on worse side than he actually is, he's actually <laughs> you know he's actually okay, but he um, he's a he's an old and he's a Tory, and he um, he basically. Um, he sort of someone brought up Harry Potter, not me for once. And he turns around and he goes, Well the thing about that JK Rowling is, you know, she wrote that book while she was on benefits, didn't she? And sort of Laura and I were like, Well, yeah, she wrote the first one when she was on benefits. And then and he goes, Well, you know, she's very rich now, isn't she? <laughs> he said, Well, are they asked us to pay those benefits back? What? And I was I know, I know, and it was just—I mean, I think that again. That and also, like my uncle Cliff, like, starts to be blunt about it. Like, he's not loaded. Like, you know, he doesn't live in a manor. So, like, he at some point in his life, presumably, has encountered people on benefits. But like, he's sort of—he's towards the later end of boomer age, and I just think they're so far away from the realities of that when they get older and own property and whatever. And I mean, I just sort of said, like, not even being like sort of trolley young relative at Christmas, and I just said, well. As far as I'm aware, the views that J.K. Rowling holds, Cliff, I believe she, for a rich person, mostly pays her taxes in full. <laughs> and even if she only paid a fraction of said tax, which I believe she should pay in full, but, like, you know, she will have paid back 
the amount of benefits that she claimed for two years in the 90s many, many, many times over. Yeah. So, yeah, she's probably made a net profit for Scotland on that front. Uh, and he was like, oh, oh, I know, I know. You know, I change the subject. But it is just like, it, we're looking at it from our side, but from the other side, there is clearly that view of her as like, literally still like benefits mum, who like wrote a popular book. Not that my uncle Cliff is the whole of the right-wing media sphere, but uh, he's a good indicator. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, I think that Rags to Riches is very much associated yeah. with her and her story in the books. And, oh, I was sat on a train and I saw Harry walking down it towards me and whatever. All that, yeah. all that stuff. With with my, my relationship to it, because I, I think, you know, I've, I've probably got the least personal, important connection to Harry Potter of the three of us, I think. Just because I read the books at the time when I was a kid, I watched the movies as I was coming, you know, into my adolescence and stuff like that. And I've never really felt the need to revisit them. And I didn't feel that they were necessarily as forming to me as like other stuff I was reading at the same time. Like I look at the work of Terry Pratchett, which I was reading an awful lot of at the same time. And like that to me has had a much bigger impact on the way that I think and the sort of stories that I like to create and stuff like that. So with the revelations about J.K. Rowling, I don't think that it's necessarily changed my opinion of the work per, uh, exactly. It's like, I wasn't thinking of revisiting Harry Potter at any point in the near future. Like, I had no real desire to do that. And now this, I'm like, well, now I'm even less likely to want to revisit that. And I've seen, like, the Fantastic Beasts movies, mostly out of morbid curiosity about how weird and confused and kind of not great they are and that's again a product of i guess you know because rowling does write those and i'm just sort of like hearing this about her i i, I appreciate every, you know the, the you know there are a lot of people who are very hurt by this you know close friends of mine are very hurt by this but i personally don't feel like it's changed my relationship to the work because to me i'm like it's a piece of fiction that exists that i read when i was a kid that and, like, I, in the same way that, like, I look at, like, the stories of Narnia, for example, you know, um, C.S. Lewis, like, wrote some nice children's books, but also had some pretty weird views and was also hyper-religious. And I feel like I don't agree with a lot of the stuff that he does. But, again, I've, I, you know, Narnia was more forming to me, I guess, than Potter because I was read it at a younger age, so it, impressed, it made more of an impression on me. But... Yeah, I think it's the, the difference for me is I think it's because the fact that J.K. Rowling is like alive and espousing her bigotry on a platform to millions of people and has the weight of being, you know, one of the richest women in the world with like an absolutely enormous Twitter following and the control over like this global franchise. I think that part for me makes it a lot more personal because like if it came out that, for example, Terry Pratchett was like a massive bigot for some reason. I would feel sad about that and it would change my relationships to the books, but it would hurt less because he's dead. Like the things, the bad things that he thought or did or said or whatever, they're kind of, there's a sense of closure there. And I think the thing that I draw from a lot of the relationship to the Potter stuff is this anxiety that like, well, how's this going to go? Because I don't think it's going to get better. Mm. I mean, that's the thing about something being a live debate. Um, I think that the one that I sort of felt very close up to was... Um, living living in the States and being in the film industry and specifically the New York film industry, Woody Allen was just a constant, like, 
Woody Allen and to a lesser extent Roman Polanski, but particularly Woody Allen. Because like I know like you think of that city and it's like it's like bagels, people yelling, "I'm walking here," and Woody Allen. Like you know, it's like such a yeah. it's such a thing. And for the film industry, it was kind of like number one Woody Allen. And I think it is possible to separate the art from the artist. The thing that's worrying it to me is when someone. I think with Woody Allen, it sort of set me, it put my awareness of, anecdotally, so many times when you hear someone defending an artist who has been, let's say one's best word, cancelled, um, if they are defending them, it's not just because they're like, I want to be able to watch this and not feel bad. Mm-hmm. It's it comes from in some way them just not caring like because I think I mean Woody Allen was sort of interesting is the wrong word but it's relevant for that reason like I would talk to so many people and like the Woody I think the Woody Allen thing just drives me mad so much because it is like when you when you hear some people talking about him or you talk to me it's like am I an opposite world? <laughs> like he literally he literally married his daughter like if Woody Allen was a bus driver he would be in prison. Like, there is just absolutely no question about it. Like, you know, he is, like, full... I mean, like, it's just like, you know, with people yelling, like, pedo at him in the street. Like, it is just unbelievable. Like, he took, like... There is overwhelming... Like, no, he wasn't prosecuting the courts of law, and yes, the courts of law has to come before the court of public opinion. But the fact that the man is, like, being defended by celebrities and still working... And seriously, like, to this day, if you talk to people in the film industry about him... And you say, like, what about, you know, what about, like, but isn't, like, you know, Woody Allen, he, like, married, he married a girl who he was legally adopted, or was married to legally adopted, which is good as, when she was an infant. And even he himself says, like, they first had sexual contact in her first, like, trip home from college, which, first... First of all, sorry, I just don't believe. And even if it was that, like, I don't know, like, if we found out that someone in our social circle had, like, married someone, like, you wouldn't have them around for a beer, would you? And it's the, it's like, that's the thing. But if you talk to people in the film industry about it, they're like, yeah, well, Mia Farrow, you know, like, she's a real sinister character. And, like, actually, she was really mean to a lot of the kids she adopted. And, you know, and it's like, even if all that was true, which there's a lot of evidence that it's not, it's like Woody Allen's people spin up these stories and the press is largely on his side because he's a powerful man and whatever. It's like, it doesn't mean he didn't molest the kids. Yeah. And a lot of it comes from people who are, one, they have a vested interest because they're in the film industry, and two, they want to watch, like, Annie Hall and not feel weird about it. And I think it's particularly bad with with Woody Allen because it's like, Say what you like about J.K. Rowling, and I'm not saying this is a defense, I'm just saying, like, into what extent one can separate themselves from the material. Like, yeah, she's outspoken about her views, and yeah, she's probably going to keep saying this stuff because she's got a following. But there is not, one of the Harry Potter books was not called, like, Harry, like, Harry Potter defends the true meaning of womanhood. (laughs) Harry Potter and the secret of gender essentialism. Yeah, exactly. Like, whereas whereas Woody Allen's films are kind of like that. I'd say, like, so so many of them are about uh, um, either Woody Allen himself playing a man or or another, when he got older, 
a younger actor playing someone who is trying to date a younger woman who is at oldest a college student and sometimes younger than that. Manhattan, literally, like the whole plot of it is him dating a 17-year-old. And even when I watched that film when I was like 15, I was, like, I was thinking like, are the laws different in America? <laughs> when you're a teenager, you think you're really old and really grown up. But even as a 15-year-old, I was like, this is a bit weird. Like, I obviously didn't have a reaction to what I have now, but I was just like, it's really strange that no one talks about this part of the film more, because it's really odd that he's staying this teenager, and it's not, no one's like, oh, she's a bit young for you, in the story of the film, or well, not in any serious way. No one's like, you're sick. Everyone just sort of treats it like, I don't know, she's 25 and he's 35, which is a different thing. Um, well, the, the thing, that, so, I, the thing the, that I come to is that with, with, the, with the work of Woody Allen, it's like, it feels much more conscious like, he's using his platform to try and normalise the idea of older man dating much, much younger woman. Like, sometimes, sometimes underage woman. And like, yeah. that's... Yeah. He, he seems it, to be trying to say to everyone, look how cool and normal this is. It's mm. cool and normal. I'm Woody Allen, famous film director. Cool and normal. But no and problems. the thing is, if, if he hadn't done any of that stuff, you could watch the film and it's a thin argument, but you could argue, like oh, he's parodying a certain type of person, it's not what he actually believes. Like, Whereas, like, when you know what you yeah, know but he's also married to his daughter. He obviously <laughs> well, believes no. it. Yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> but it's like, if you if you accept that he not... Because the thing is, they accept he married his daughter, but they go on the narrative of, like, she was grown up when they got together and he wasn't around her much, so it was fine. Which is obviously absurd, mm. but that's the argument the defenders go on. Also, Mia Farrow's evil cause. Um, and mm. then... Whereas if the thing they won't accept, which I feel is just like so overwhelmingly true, is um, that he molested his other daughter in an attic um, when they were much younger. And people will say that didn't happen. Mia Farrow is a liar. I'm not going to go into it, but you can look at Ronan Farrow's writing about it. Like, it definitely yeah. happened. Like, the reason, that w- the reason Woody Allen is not in jail for it is because rich people can get away with things and he was richer than Mia Farrow. Um, um, and the, Hannah Gadsby's point about um, the, our obsession with reputation in regards to Picasso comes to mind as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. In, in, um, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just you know, in in Nanette. She like I was going to go into more detail about that point, but like you watch if you haven't watched Nanette, dear listener, go watch it. But she does make a whole thing about um, yeah about how reputation. Like we we are more concerned with the idea of Picasso's reputation than we are with the safety of an underage girl. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you, you you can look at the stuff that I saw. You may you guys may have seen that the, one of the regular contributors to Joe Rogan's podcast, like in on on Mike on the show. Like I saw this come across my Twitter feed. I don't know the dude's name, but he's like some you know jowly old guy <laughs> um, who's apparently quite big in the LA comedy scene. He was all like, "Oh, all these women complaining about how hard it is in stand up. Like I had to, women would come and suck my dick to get stage time." And the other panelists laugh and Jogan goes, how many times did that happen? And then he talks about like, oh, it's like 20 times. He talks about how a specific young comic, like he's quote unquote, he's like, oh, I ruined her. She was, you know, she had dirt under her fingernails and she was like, you've ruined me. And I laughed at her. And you, and you just have this sort of thing like, what the, f-? one, what the fuck? But the other thing was that in the comments of that on Twitter, people were saying like, oh, you know, just like Louis C.K. and fucking um, Bill Cosby, etc., etc., comedy remains a cesspool for young female comics. And someone popped in saying, well, Louis C.K. is not as bad as that. And someone would say, 
He literally locked women in rooms with him and then started masturbating at them. Like, yeah. Okay, yeah, if you want to play like a weird subjective argument, like, yeah, that's not as bad as fully penetrating someone, but what the fuck is wrong with you? He's higher in the bin. Yeah. The distinction between those two people is a discussion for like. A class of a class teaching criminal law, like that. That distinction is important for them. Yeah, it's not yeah. a discussion for like, should this person be prominent in you know prominent in the public eye? It's like no, that's it's it's yeah. no either time. Yeah. That's a, but, and yeah, it's not it's not a binary issue, but that's not a distinction anyone needs to be wringing their hands over. No, yeah, it's it's sort of diluting the point a bit. Uh, but I do also want to I want oh. to piggyback on on your point about like it's easy it's it's harder to separate Woody Allen from his films because his films are like almost directly related to the to the controversy around him. Yeah, um, exactly. Oh, oh no, let's not let's not use that word. Let's say the reason he is a shit. Um, yeah. But um, and, and in some in some ways, like while that does make you know J.K. Rowling easier to separate from his work because you can have a, a you can make a fairly Transpositive interpretation of that work with the value of found families and the sort of issues of identity and and tolerance that are espoused there. Uh, it's only like now that we realise that J.K. Rowling was like, oh yes, tolerate everyone except. Um, but at the same time, that that sort of that makes it bad in a different way because that means that there's this whole group of people who had this sort of very positive, affirming interpretation of it, and now the the author has said, oh no, that's not what I meant. Um, and now that's like so. While you can still continue to make that interpretation from her work, and it's still it's still valid, even if that isn't like what was intended, because you know lots of people still got that interpretation from it, so it's definitely there. Um, at the same time, like it's now it's now that that message is sort of tainted a bit because it's like oh, it is in direct opposition to the views of the author, which we now know. Callum, can I ask you a direct question? <laughs> yes. How, how? What's your feeling about um, the works of Warren Ellis at the moment? <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that, yeah, I mean, so, I'm I'm in a similar thing where I'm like, I I still don't. I mean, well, I'm going to say I'll, up front. If, if, top, if the reason, uh, if the list is not familiar with Warren Ellis, can you just uh, explain what's gone on there? Uh, Callum, do you want to yeah. jump on it? You were more informed than I was when we last spoke of it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Warren Ellis is, and yeah, I was going to say before I was like, oh, all these shits who defended Woody Allen, like, sort of a few days after Jim suggested this podcast title, um, a he's most well known for writing comics, I guess, though recently that was changing with his TV work. Warren Ellis is a writer of TV novels and comics. Um, yep. Of the things that a listener may have heard of. Uh, he wrote Netflix's... He was showrunner and mostly writer of Netflix's very successful Castlevania series was the most recent thing. Um, yep. A whole bunch of other TV stuff. He Nick's phrase, he's probably one of the top ten comics writers the general public are likely to have heard of. It's kind of like... Alan, yep. It's like below Alan Moore, he's like one of those guys. Um, yeah, he's like a Grant Morrison level yeah. person where people are like, oh yeah, I know that name. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, the book he's probably still most known for is Transmetropolitan, though he's written like a, a, a lot of other things. Um, yeah, and he was um, in the past week or so a uh, comics creator called Katie West on Twitter said that. 
Warren Ellis had had basically coerced coerced sex from her when she was in her late teens and early 20s. Um, or like, I mean, sex chat, which is the same thing, but I, didn't, I don't know, like the, the, the sex chat thing was brought up a lot. And since she made that statement on Twitter, um, 50, 50 women who fell into basically the broad category of female comics creators who are trying to get into the industry or but specifically it's the information it, it sort of highlights the predatory nature of it specifically alt models mm. who were interested in the comics industry in some way um or just generally raising their profile uh and about yeah around 50 women have come forward um to come forward to an anonymous support group founded by some of the victims who have publicly identified themselves um and uh, yeah, it's he is probably I would say one of if you ask me to name like five creators who've influenced me and in my quote unquote work uh, the most. Uh, yeah, I'd probably say he was one of them. Um, yep. And at first, I was feeling my initial. I was first of all, I was uh, my first thought was like, oh, you've got some skin in the game now um, because it was you know obviously. I think yeah, he was. De- he's definitely the creator who's been um, who's been outed as a predator um, that I sort of care about his work the most because it wasn't just his work. Like he put this newsletter out every week about writing that was very personal. Like there are there are things that I there are like there's there's stuff that I use in my in my working life on a day to day process. That are things that I've learned from Warren Ellis. Like there was something I was doing the other day when formatting a document, and I was like, "Fuck!" Like even this is like something that I took from how he does it, and like how he puts out a beat sheet. Um, and I think that my initial reaction was like that Warren Ellis wasn't a Woody Allen, where it was that his work was so overtly about the about his like. It wasn't like propaganda in favour of his predatory behaviour, yeah. therefore this would be easier to separate. I probably wouldn't be proudly putting him on a list of top five creators I like anymore, but it wouldn't be... And then, the more I've thought about it, it's like my um, uh, my partner Laura, when I was talking to her about it, she made a good point where she was like, yes, it's possible to separate the art from the artist, because I've always made the point with the Woody Allen thing of like, at the end of the day, if you really want to watch Annie Hall, you can watch Annie Hall, you've just got to be grown up about it and stay informed about who Woody Allen is. Um, and I sort of came with that attitude where I was like, at the end of the day, if I still want to read his comics, I can read his comics and just stay fully aware and not pretend that he wasn't a horrible person. Um, and she said like, yeah, but you also have to look for stuff that's more latent in the work. And... I was sort of like, I thought about like, well, is there anything like that? And then immediately my head went to Transpiratory which is um, TLDR about a journalist in the future who is vaguely based on Hunter S. Thompson. And then I realised, and I'd reread the thing, I'd reread the book since and thought that this, these elements were problematic. And if I was, say, adapting them, probably wouldn't leave this element in. Um, but the two key supporting characters in Transpiratory are. The journalist is called Spider Jerusalem. He has two two assistants who are both female. He refers to them as his filthy assistants, um, and there are just lots of like he he has like a drunken fling with one of them that then when they're both blackout drunk that in in 
<laughs> spoilers, but you're probably not going to run out and read any of his books now anyway. Um, <laughs> is that um, spoilers? Uh, he ends up he ends up in a full relationship with one of them at the end, and the book ends with her pregnant with one of his children. Um, and also, there's just lots of jokes about how like they have to like clean up after him involving like cleaning up after sex or like there's lots of jokes about how they have to like clean his disgusting underwear and whatever or like buy disgusting sexual aids for his like masturbating at home and that kind of thing and it was a sort of thing that at like younger ages in my teens came across as like some sort of hyper stylized artistic genius bullshit um but then looking back you're like no that was Warren Ellis putting forward kind of how he sees women. Mm. Um, and the funny thing is, like, just because this is how bad comics are, a medium in which there was a super dog before there was a super girl. Um, <laughs> like, you know, the filthy assistants in Transmetropolitan, compared to a lot of other comics characters, were relatively well-formed characters. I, I would agree, and yeah, 100%. I, I know it sounds I know it sounds crazy if you haven't read it based on the things I just said, but had a high level of autonomy, like you know, their own thoughts, feelings, viewpoints were memorable for their own reason, like all those things. And so it was that's what's that's what's more frustrating about it is it's not like it's not like they were Woody Allen characters, but at the end of the day it doesn't change the fact that, that probably was Warren Ellis. I mean, there was a in one of the articles reporting on his um uh, the information that's come to light about the way he'd sexually coerced women. One of the comics just matter. One of the pieces just matter of factly said, uh, "Transmetropolitan, a book in which the lead character has a sexually abusive relationship with one of his female employees." And I was like, "Oh, that basically is it. Mm, like, yeah. if you if you hired an assistant who lives in your house, had sex with them when you were drunk, and made them clean up like clean up your cum, that would be seen as a very abusive relationship." And so it's not even like it was that subtle. There's other stuff in other books as well. But there's the thing, before, you know, you you know this about Warren Ellis, you you, you can, like, just because, like, because Spider is clearly, like, not meant to be an entirely sympathetic character. So you can easily, like, see that and be like, oh, yeah, the the author has consciously chosen to portray uh, a a, a not entirely sympathetic character in this way. We're not meant to approve of this. Yeah, 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 100%. And so then it's only... It's only after you discover that oh no, this this might actually be informed by Warren Ellis's own views rather than um, satire. Exactly. I feel like it's yeah. It was because my defense is always like, well, Spider has also killed people. Like you know that that the book does not defend that as good. There are scenes where they discuss it, um, but that yeah. Now it feels like well, Warren Ellis thinks killing people is bad, but he does not <laughs> think <laughs> big whoop. Um, but he doesn't think that other stuff is bad. And I think the other thing that was, in fairness with Warren Ellis, I have to, that one of the things was, the way I found out about it was because I subscribed to his newsletter, which always went out on a Sunday like clockwork. And the the newsletter went out on a Wednesday and without a pun title, the email heading just said a statement. And before I'd even read it, I was like, I know what this is. (laughs) And... <laughs> and and then it was um the thing that the thing that was also it's not just the books it's when you look at it like oh, Warren Ellis is a big he's a big overweight man not in great health with a huge beard who wears a lot of black 
if you ask me to do a police sketch of a sexual abuse <laughs> in entertainment, and I had always felt this about Warren Ellis, it probably wouldn't. And there are also things which I remember made me sort of go like, a little bit about him. Like, he would occasionally name drop, like, alt models slash porn stars that he was friends with in his sort of talking about his own life. And I'd just be like, why are we talking about this? Like, I don't hear, for example, like, Grant Morrison doing this. And, like, Grant Morrison seems to be a lot of weird shit. You know, like, but he doesn't feel the need to tell us that he's, like, has that social circle. Um, And so that was... So, yeah, I think it was one of those things with Warren Ellis where there'd probably been an element of denial on my part doing exactly what Jim said, where it's like, I'm not saying that he's a perfect person. He's also not writing about perfect people. Whatever. Whereas now a whole lot of that stuff looks very different. Mm, mm. And it's very hard to... It's, it's hard to read. So I think, yeah, sorry, the long answer, my, my answer is like, I feel like it's going to be tough to read his work in the future. I feel like on a pure technique level, a lot of the stuff that I took away from him in terms of learning to write, I don't feel like I'm going to have to like reformat like script documents differently now because of this. But I feel like the biggest thing that's going to remain in my life is sort of mechanical mechanical skills for writing as opposed to um, the the characters. But it's hard. I mean, like, Spidey Jerusalem, <laughs> like, ways I talked for a large part of my young life. Like, it was the thing that got me interested in politics. Mm. You know, like, it's, it's all that stuff. And, it, yeah, it's, it's tough to separate. Um, so, I mean, I know. How are you feeling about it? My... My feelings on it are in the same way that, like, while I'd, I wasn't signed up to the newsletter or anything, and I wouldn't necessarily list Warren Ellis as someone who I think is a direct big influence, like, I was thinking about it a lot in preparation for this podcast, and man, Transmetropolitan was pretty formative in, like, my interest in comics and also my interest in politics, and the way that that, that, book, that's it, that book specifically talks about media narratives and the way you know what the meaning of truth is and the corruption of government and stuff like that and the exploitation of people it was very very important to me and it was when i saw online people pointing out that the relationship between um yelena and spider was like oh this is actually kind of like weird and fucked up and like you say kind of like i in the back of my head i was aware that it was weird and fucked up and i i you know the the I always felt it was a bit weird that she ended up, like, in the relationship and pregnant with his kid when, like, a certain amount of the story seemed to be, like, she's going to be the successor because, you know, Spider is, like, a very self-destructive character and without getting into the spoilers of, like, the actual mechanics of that, it's, like, you feel like she's going to take his place. And I think in my mind I kind of focused in the same way that you talked about how the Filthy Assistants are very three-dimensional well-realized female characters who have agency in their own lives like the book parts is the Beckdale test really easily and it does have a lot of interesting and nuanced conversations where characters including spider himself will talk about the relative morality of the things that they are doing and the way that they're doing it and the sort of whether it's the right thing to do however the exact nature of his relationship to yelena specifically is never quite given the same level of scrutiny it's like it's yeah. something that yeah. thinking back on it now i'm like it is kind of conspicuous that like you have in the in the story when he initially wakes up and realizes that they've had sex and everything and he spends the day like you know they're both kind of like depressed and sort of 
upset and not really sure how to interact with the situation. Like, you have Spider, you know, I remember the line specifically says, okay, where are we? Okay, plans. One, kill self. No. Two, kill Yelena. No. Failing that, kill everybody else in the world. Possible. Like, it's played kind of, like, for laughs in a way. And at the same time, like, getting blackout drunk and having sex with the person who's effectively your boss when you are, like... I don't know if Yelena's age is necessarily ever directly stated, but the age gap between her and Spider is pretty large. She is meant to be, like, sort of, you know, college-age kind of girl sort of thing. Well, yeah, and... no, she's, she's... Yeah, it's clarified that she's in college. It's also... We meet her dad in the book, and he is... Yeah. He, he's closer to aging Spider than she is to Spider. So... And, like, yes. there are people in relationships with big age gaps who are genuinely in love. I'm not, like, you know... However, there are also a lot of people in those relationships for the wrong reasons, and I think that's another component of what makes that relationship in the book, you know, not great. Yeah. And it's just... And the fact that it's just never properly analysed, and I think the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is the... Specific, coming back to Woody Allen, again, like, even if, let's say, the best case example of, you know, of what Woody Allen did with marrying his daughter, even if, like, everything, all the, you know, ablative statements or whatever, where he's like, oh, you know, it's fine, it wasn't until she was properly overage or whatever. One thing you can't separate from that is the dynamics of power and the way that that relationship would have been. She goes from seeing him as caregiver and ultimate parental authority figure to a lover. Like, that doesn't just happen by itself. There has to be a motive force in that happening and it's generally falls on the part of the person who has all of the power in the relationship. Yeah. And I I look back and like I've got friends of mine who will remain nameless who have been in relationships with people with large age gaps, specifically when they were in like their late teens and the person they were dating were in their like early to mid 30s. And they spoke to me about it like saying that it felt really strange and I was like, "Well, yes, because this person that you're dating is I, I, you know, and I know that there, there are relationships where age gaps work, but when you're still at that very figuring yourself out kind of age, dating someone that much older than you is not a fair balance of power in that relationship. And it, even if, you know, the older person is not intending it to be coercive, they have so much more confidence, self-assurance and authority within the context of that relationship that it's just messed up. And... I don't know what I'm going to do necessarily about, like, you know, I'm not going to fucking burn my Transmetropolitan books or whatever, because I still think there are messages and ideas and concepts in that book that I think are important and are laudable. Like, I'm still, I, I, I would still watch Castlevania because Castlevania, also in the same way, does a lot of really interesting things that are unrelated to the ideas of um, sexual power dynamics and coercive relationships. But... yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I'm still processing it at the moment, and it's it, and I and I just want to you know particularly flag like us all griping about oh it's really hard that I can't like my favorite comic book anymore. Like obviously the real victims in this situation are the women who were victimized by the person, and it was bad. And no comic book is good enough to justify that having happened. No, I also think the thing is the actually the uh, the third list of women who have come forward um, as having been. Uh, coerced by Warren Ellis, uh, abused her when you frame it. Um, he that is also a list of uh, great comics creators, yeah. and like it's definitely worth looking up their work. Yeah. Um, I just think one of the things that comes out from this is I think there's a lot of 
yeah, like people griping like we are. And there's a lot of people who I think um, will come out and say, oh, there's like, when we say like, there's no, all the people you like are awful. And I'm not sure it's, actually, if you look at it, like, there are still, and I think when people say there's no one it's okay to like, they mean like, uh, they, they mean like men, <laughs> usually, usually, usually white men. Mm. Um, and then I think the thing is like, actually, no, there's fucking loads. I think if anything, the reason it seems like a disproportionately high number is even if it's not on a like Warren Ellis level or a Woody Allen level, even if it's more of like a Quentin Tarantino level where there's just like, there's a few things they've done. It just it doesn't like feel great, um, it, you know, and much worse than that for the people who were their victims. I think that the thing is like the people, people who really just want to like do the work and do a good job and be liked by the people that they work with and not get anything sinister out of it, tend to be the people who are less inclined to turn themselves into public figures mm. in addition to their work. Mm. Um, and you know like in in my like limited experience getting into the industry one of the things that drew me to wanting to do tv writing so much is that all the tv writers i met particularly the ones who'd worked on sitcoms and i mean like big established sitcoms like i feel like it's okay to say these people because i'm like you know <laughs> i'm not saying anything bad about them um but like you know the i was lucky enough to take a few classes with uh, michael Weirthorn, who's the showrunner of king of queens mm. or um, uh, like the showrunner of Roseanne, which like you know, uh, he's a separate figure from her. But it's like the obviously Roseanne's had its own issues over the years. But you know when Roseanne was first on the air, uh, he was showrunner, and they have they were. Just, I was like, these people aren't psychopaths. Like, <laughs> he was sort of directing, you know, like and it, which I know. I was like, it sounds it sounds like oh my god, why should that be such a big thing? But like all the te- nearly all the teachers of directing and pretty much universally all of the male teachers of directing that I'd met had just been like some version of um, uh, the guy from that movie Whiplash with Miles Teller where it's just like constantly trying to head fuck you. It was all about them. They were bitter, always banging all about their own careers. Whereas like, you know, they're bad, they all have bad relationships with their families, like, you know, whatever. Whereas meaning the sitcom rising, it was just like, but I'd look at them in their positions and think you could have made yourselves into big public figures. Mm. You could have made yourselves the media centerpiece of this thing, but you chose not to. Um, it's like you just chose to get on with it and do it. And I think, and also TV writing, particularly comedy writing, in the era they were big, less so now, wasn't a medium where it was slight, it was easy to make yourself into a big public figure. You could do it if you wanted, but it was harder to. And I think maybe that's the reason that they were happy to do it, because they were like, well, I just get to work all the time and write something I like. Who cares? Whereas the people who are sinister in some way tend to be drawn to the role where they can be a big public figure at the same time. And that mm. make themselves... Because with that comes a certain level of, like, the ability to influence people around you through the mm. sheer force of your persona. Exactly. I think, I think that's true partic- particularly of men. Uh, but I do think J.K. <coughs> JK Rowling is an interesting exception. Because I don't think she was ever drawn to public life. No, I, th- um, no, I do think that's true. And I think that's probably where some of her, like... That's what's so weird, to be honest, about this, like, turf business. is like, you know, it's like... You never wanted anyone to look at you before. 
but suddenly like this issue it's almost like you hate them so much that you've decided to you know put yourself out there on this as opposed to talking about any of the other things you could have decided to put yourself out in the public eye for and as many people commented at the time it's like wow in the midst of the one of the largest pieces of social upheaval in the western world's modern history you are choosing to take this moment rather than to use your enormous platform to necessarily to support say any of the black lives matter stuff that's going on maybe decry the you know rising creep of fascism you're going to take this opportunity to have a crack at one of the most vulnerable and marginalized groups in society and 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 what's so incredible about that is that um she the the extremely i mean everyone should be anti-fascist it's it's a given but like the the i don't know the woke social justice age i'm sorry there's no better words for that because i hate them uh but like like the the generation that grew up on harry potter um are the ones who are the most anti-fascist because her her books carry a very strong anti-fascist uh message with them um so so it's very interesting that like in this time considering the values that your books have instilled upon an entire generation of people who are now uh a, a considerable factor of this social movement um it's it's interesting that you had that you're not allying yourself with them can I just speak very briefly? And I, this is going to, I don't want to necessarily like refute your point a little, Jim. Oh, please, no, please do. Well, it's not necessarily a refutation, but there's the, I, it's somewhat mimetic, but there comes a time when you see enough of it online and you're just like, oh, God. Um, a friend of mine once put it like, there's a certain thing with p- some people in our generation who only ever read Harry Potter. Mm. And part of the issue with that is, is that you have people viewing their politics and the rest of the world through the prism of that book because it was an intensely powerful formative item early on so it's a useful way to sort of simplify complex issues and put it in the context of a thing that you understand the problem is is that one the world is much more complicated than harry potter itself yes and two you come back to the idea of whether you're knowingly or not if you choose to interpret your world largely through the works of J.K. Rowling, you are pretty much subscribing to her prism of what the world should be. Yeah, that's fair. With all of its problems instilled in that. Yeah, about a, a young boy who ends up becoming a police officer. Yeah, he becomes a cop. And also, like, I, I've talked on the podcast before a bit about, like, how much I have become sort of disenfranchised with chosen one narratives. Mm. Because it's like, oh, you're just intrinsically special. Like, you didn't really do anything. You just grew up and you now are a millionaire. And also, like, everyone knows who you are. And you're also the most important person who ever lived. And as a younger person, I was very drawn to those kinds of narratives because, hey, it's projection. It's like, you know, the hero- heroic fantasy and that kind of stuff. You know, you'd all like, oh, I wish I would be taken off to become, like, the coolest wizard ever mm. and stuff. But the thing is, as I've grown up and I kind of see the... Not necessarily, I wouldn't go as far as to use the word toxic, but the sort of negative permutations of that, of the belief that you are entitled to a certain level of specialness and treatment beyond having actually done anything. Hmm. Like, I be, I move away from narratives like that now because I read stuff other than Harry Potter and forged like this, a more complicated idea of what it means to be heroic or what it means to fight against systems. You know, like... And again, this is the slight part of reputation, refutation rather. It's like J.K. Rowling's answer to fascism is to just go back to the centrism that allowed fascism to to prosper. Yes. And so it's ultimately not a thing that fixes the problem. It allows the system to continue relatively unchecked. Mm. 
Oh no, uh, well, I'll add that um, Harry Potter is a sort of a subversion of the chosen one narrative, but that's a whole fucking conversation. Yeah, I do, yeah. I do think it's true that, um, but yeah, she's like her, like she sort of represents fascism as the work of one bad guy who needs to be killed. A and, few bad apples, Jim. Yeah, which is not, it's not necessarily the the metaphor we need. <laughs> All them cops, they're just so many bad apples. Callum, you have one minute left. Do you have any closing statements? <laughs> um. Yeah, I think maybe just uh, uh, I think that my my feeling of my feeling on like can you separate can you separate yours from the work is yes you can um, still even after the Warren Ellis stuff it just takes a you you just one of the biggest problems we have in discussing all kinds of things in modern media is we we struggle with having the maturity to take things on a case-by-case basis and use our values and principles to look at situations individually and go, this is okay and this is not. Because being told like a, a rule about like, you can read this, you can't read this, you can do this, you can't do this, is easy and it's safe. But actually it's exactly the kind of thing that leads us to not pay attention, not examine things. I think in terms of like, can you separate the author from the work, particularly if the author has done horrible things, the answer is like, it depends on the author. Um, you know, I am not, and it really does like, and, and that you're, <laughs> everyone's line is different. I mean, the example I always use is, I'm not going to stop watching Baby Driver because Kevin Spacey's in it. Like, you know, it's, I am going to stop watching. And, 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 and Ansel Elgort, like him also. He recent uh, uh, he recently like whole bunch of stuff about him coercing underage oh, girls into sexual oh relationships. God, really? Yeah. Oh fucking hell! <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I'm sorry. Ca- I'm sorry to do that on air, but like, <laughs> oh, they should have cast a Pete Stanfield, shouldn't they? That was oh uh, yes. Like they should have done in every. It, it, I mean, like yeah, like they should have done it every movie that was coming out that year. Uh, but they um, uh, yeah, that I'm not going to watch that movie because of it. Maybe now. Um, but the, you know, I, I would stop, for example, watching, uh, American Beauty, one, because it's overrated, two, because it has Kevin Spacey in it trying to bang a teenager, um, mm. which again, we know why he was so convincing in that role now. Um, <laughs> and I, th- that's like a slightly facetious example, but I think that's essentially the point is like, you, you decide what you think is too problematic for you to watch and not like, mm. you know like look closely at stuff that's made by someone who's shitty and be aware of the messages that they're trying to push through and you can take away the stuff that you want um, but also it's fine to just another example of one that I was close to is the emo band uh, the emo band Brand New oh, uh, used to have yeah. a lot of yeah they used to have a lot of stylized lyrics about like how they wished the singer used to put a lot of stylized lyrics in about like how he wished the girls he was used to go out with would die which, again, you could put as, like, playing a character until you found out he'd routinely abused fans sexually and otherwise. Yeah. And that, that I was just like, you know, I just don't want to listen to this anymore. I'm not mm. even saying it's bad. It's not. They're good songs, but I don't want to listen to it anymore. And it's also fine to just be like, this is too hard, and I can't be bothered. Because um, yeah. at the end of the day, what the victims have gone through is so much harder than mm. you having to not listen to an album anymore. And I guess the other thing I'd say is, I'd repeat the thing I said about uh, Warren Ellis, which is the list of creators who've come forward to talk about their experiences. If there's one th- if there's one reason to Google it, there are a list of really, really good comics writers and artists and creators. Mm. Um, and yeah, if, if anything comes out of this, I hope it's that more attention will go to them and less to him. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think there's there's no easy way to wrap this up because I, I think the answer to the question, like, can you still enjoy the work of an artist who has been revealed to have abhorrent views? Uh, the answer to that question is that is not a complex enough question mm. um, because yeah. I think that's it's it's perfectly, as you say, it's perfectly uh, reasonable for you to to try and distance yourself from those creators. It's also it's also acceptable to try and continue to to if you can interpret something positive from it it's it's okay to do that but i think you do need to be aware of the context in which a, p- a piece of art was created agreed and i you know because i'm aware we're over time um i would just agree with callum and basically put the emphasis on be aware of what messages a piece is trying to say to you mm. and then think about whether you agree with those and also because it's like consuming a piece of media is not necessarily endorsing it like no. you know i've read the bible do i endorse the bible no you know but it's yeah you're always banging on about it Nick. but there's still a few ways <laughs> but there's still a few good stories in it but genuinely yes there are yeah. there are some actually good stories in there but the thing is great world it, building great world yeah. building <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the thing is is you can consume the media of whoever you want but when it comes to interactions and discussions of that media or how you think that media is affecting you as a person, that's where you need to be aware and to think carefully about what it says about you if you keep routinely going back. Let's say you watch a shit ton of Woody Allen movies. Unavoidably, at some point, you can have to say, why do I identify with all of these narratives about older men meeting spirited young things who just need a good hard dicking? (laughs) Like, you know, what, what is it about that that keeps me coming back? I don't know, you know. You need to be aware of your media diet and you can eat whatever you want, but be careful about it. And as I say, also, you know, support the victims. They are the real victims. That's why they're the victims. Ah. Uh, Yeah. So that's not a waste of time. Yes. Yes. Great ending. Uh, Cut this there. We're never going to solve it. Yeah. Uh, I feel like you're just going to fade this, aren't you? Yeah, I think I'll have to. of time featured the voices of me jim woodall nick hurd and callum smith music by anthony bullinger 